Welcome everyone to the Interoperability Roundtable. This is an open forum fostering conversations around interoperability. My name is Jake Tunney, Product Manager at Leap Orbit, and I'm lucky enough to be your MC today. And I'm happy to announce that you can now find this conversation on Spotify. We're joined today by hosts David Finney and Ramal Basker, co-founders of Leap Orbit. Leap Orbit is the trusted innovation partner to many of the biggest market-leading health data networks, including CRISP, Manifest Medics, and Sync Health, as well as the policymakers who oversee them. We are currently working on improving the accuracy and accessibility of provider data with our product, Convergent, a provider directory API as a service. Convergent also assists plans to comply with the CMS interoperability rule. And today, we are opening access to our provider data API via a free private beta. And you can sign up for that. There will be a limited number of spots, up to 100 people, at leaporbit.com slash private dash beta. And I'll be dropping this in the chat after, so you can grab that link. Today, we are joined by Karsten Russell Wood. Karsten has over 20 years of healthcare solution management spanning care segments from intensive to acute to post-acute, as well as pop health-centric specialization, including neonatal, fetal and maternal and chronic patients. He has product management experience in capital equipment and health informatics, and currently leads the telehealth portfolio of Philips Health for remote patient monitoring in the ambulatory sector, tele-ICU, EICU, and clinical surveillance. And before we jump into our topics, just a reminder that we encourage audience participation. So please comment your questions for Karsten, David, and Renal in the chat. Okay, David, do you have um, our topics handy that we can kick off with Karsten? I, I do. Um, Karsten, first of all, thanks for, thanks for joining us. Um, maybe before too long, we'll do one of these in person, actually. I feel like we're finally getting close. Um, I, to start, can you, um, can you orient us a little bit to sort of your portfolio at Philips? Um, what, what, what lines of business are you responsible for? Yeah, good morning and, and happy to be here. So really, David, you know, when I think of what's a portfolio manager, I always think about uh, looking at, at money, right? So if we think about the relationship between a stockbroker and a mutual fund manager, you know, a stockbroker really looks at maximizing, you know, the value of a, of a single equity. Uh, while the mutual fund manager really tries to partner with organizations and individuals to optimize kind of their goals and then align the goals with, with the outcome. Uh, that's how Phillips has reconstructed their teams to really make sure that we're not missing the opportunity to leverage the breadth of the Philips portfolio from personal health to image-guided therapy through precision diagnostics and connected care. Um, so my domain of interest and, and certainly passion as well is the post-acute and home. Uh, this spans not only a hospital's endeavor to reach into the home, thanks to COVID, but also our lives as consumers, which are now more motivated than ever to participate in our health. Uh, so that's how I would explain it. Okay. So um, th this today's uh, conversation is is really well timed because I like this was like uh, 
you know, lightning striking twice yesterday. Um, there was an article in, in Axios about hospital at home um, and, and sort of the arrival of that as a concept um, during COVID. Uh, and then, and then in, I don't know if you guys get the his talk uh, email, but there was, there, there was some deal flow in the hospital at home space that was also announced yesterday. And then when I was driving home from the gym last night, uh, NPR had a segment on, on hospital at home. Um, so we, we've got the man who can answer this question. What, what is that? <laughs> um, we, we've been, you know, home care has been a thing. Um, Medicare pays for it. Um, there, there is rehab that happens at home. Um, why, why suddenly is this like clearly the, the hot button um, phrase that people are talking about and what makes it new? Yeah, it's disappointing that it's come to this point because no longer can we be referred to as futurists, right? We're now realists. Uh, so, so I don't know if I like that as much. It's not quite as uh, appealing. Uh, but David, you're right. And, and a couple of things have happened. Uh, first and foremost, you know, COVID didn't start the fire. Uh, the migration to home has been trending for quite some years, especially across organizations that are orienting towards value-based care versus fee-for-service. Uh, we see organizations, uh, especially like the, the, the Veteran Affairs, the VA, moving to help and deliver care where it's most efficient, not simply uh, uh, reducing it to the most common treatment care setting. Uh, such as the hospital. Um, but we also see what the impact of COVID has done, right? COVID has made populations sensitive to leaving their uh, safety zones, their homes, Bubble. and moving into a hospital for treatment. Um, and of course, in, in, in contrast to that, we see hospitals that weren't seeing patients, right? Their, their elective surgery uh, centers were closed. Their uh, inpatient units uh, had experienced uh, amazing surge of populations to the point that they couldn't treat their beneficiaries and populations. So they needed to solve the problem of how do I reach and deliver the care that my organization is known for into the people that need it. And so we've seen the home become the venue where psychologically we are comfortable and safe. We've transformed the home from our consumer world uh, through, you know, uh, banking, through retail, even through communication and work uh, to be the place where we are able to, uh, you know, drive our life operations. And now health systems are leveraging technology to make that possible. Yeah. And, and, and I also think about, um, when, when you leave your bubble, so to speak, right? Uh, we've gotten used to this term uh, during COVID. Um, uh, e even though the, you're going to where the services are being delivered, uh, but we, you are um, unnecessarily and, and unwittingly being exposed um, to other things. You know, hospital acquired infections are, are a big thing. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of people lose their lives because of that or, or um, go through uh, major um, trauma. And so can you, can you speak a little bit to that and, and is that also driving and what happened in New York with COVID um, and you know, people at uh, post-acutes, um, is that also a driving factor? No, absolutely. And, and 
you know, my view is if you look at it as a fraction, there's a numerator and a denominator. And in this case, there's a clinical and an operational dimension that you can take into account. Clinically, we knew that more patients were sicker and more patients needed to be in the hospital. Operationally, the challenge there is, of course, how do we manage this, this surge of patients to make sure that the right patient has access to the right care at the right time? And this allowed us to use new solutions such as telehealth and, and the virtualization of clinical care delivery to, to uh, treat patients at the home and leverage the home as an extension of the hospital. Uh, you know, I always think of, of sports analogies and we always think about Wayne Gretzky and, you know, skating towards where the puck is headed, yeah. right? And I'll, I'll refer to this a few times during today. Phillips uh, released a week ago the Future Health Index for 2021, um, massive undertaking surveying nearly 3,000 healthcare leaders in, in 14 countries. And what that survey found was healthcare leaders expect, on average, 25% of routine care to take place outside of the hospital walls in three years. So just imagine that. Imagine the idea of us extending the frontiers of where real-time care can be treated. And you know, if, if we lay uh, homage to the actual futurist that thought of this, uh, Dr. Topol, the home should be the next hospital, right? And, and through that with technology, we can start orienting the things that allow that to happen. And from, so I guess from, a, from an interoperability perspective, what, what are the building blocks of making that possible, right? I mean, you've got the sort of remote monitoring technology, you've got um, communication on some level, um, and then you've got sort of all the clinical documentation that, that goes along with running a hospital and getting paid as a hospital, right, that's required. Um, what, what, what does that look like? It, it, it's, uh, yeah, what does it look like? Yeah. I'll put it this way. COVID forced health systems and healthcare organizations to, to build the plane while flying, right? They, they yeah. had to start implementing solutions that would allow them to continue to deliver care to their populations, support their sensitive uh, providers that were obviously, you know, maximized in, in utility and contribution. And of course, at some point, still recognize that there's a bottom line to making sure care is efficient. And so, so for Philips, what we're trying to do is, is help stabilize those fluctuating infrastructures, right? Revisiting the technologies that have been adopted and hastily deployed over the past, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing to say more than a year ago, right? You know, 14, 15 months ago, beginning on this journey of uh, deploying technologies and workflows in the time of crisis, and now help them actually transform the right ones into the new standard of care. Mm -hmm. um, we see this because, again, new solutions are coming to play, uh, whether it's just from an infrastructure standpoint that supports uh, kind of a, a seamless continuum, such as cloud-based uh, you know, platforms, uh, which certainly Philips is investing in informatic solutions that allow us to serve the patient in the hospital, at the home, irrespective of, of location. Uh, we also need to make sure that uh, data and the support of data is threaded through interoperability. 
I'll, I, I've got my little cheat sheet of, of, you know, statistics from the future health index. It says here, uh, you know, two of the things that we found as barriers were the adoption of digital health technologies uh, and the, di the difficulties with data management were nearly 44% of those 3,000 individuals surveyed. And the lack of interoperability in data standards across technology platforms was nearly 37%. So these are real-time clinicians, uh, executives at health systems today saying, we may have the right technology, but the technology is not you know, cross-pollinating and populating information. It is not communicating efficiently. And through it, we have gaps in care. And, and that's the friction that hopefully you know, we can solve together. Um, so uh, we, we have talked about remote patient monitoring and, and you know, with that comes device data. Um, so you know, getting a little bit on the technology side, uh, we, we're really talking about internet of things type data, time series data from many devices. Um, and unfortunately in, in healthcare, it's not just simple data, it's like complex data, right? Um, from one device, you can get many things and you're tracking those over time. Uh, what kind of infrastructure, and I know there is IoT infrastructure and all cloud uh, vendors, uh, they provide some sort of IoT platform. Um, what kind of infrastructure do you think it, uh, it would take or what kind of infrastructure is Philips, uh, has Philips developed or is working on um, that will allow uh, both the um, the healthcare providers, um, but the patients really get value out of this, uh, the, all that data that's being collected. Yeah, uh, data is a positive thing, but it also can be a negative thing. Too much data doesn't allow us to make the right decisions cognitively to deliver and impact care outcomes. So to that end, uh, really, you know, through meaningful use, we have now digitized uh, data in the sense that we can now collect it uh, and, and, and put it into systems of record, right? Our, our EMRs. For Philips, as we see the EMR and the utility of it, how do we now build upon it and evolve to a system of engagement that to your point, Manal, uh, not only passively uh, provides the information that's accessible and can be queried, but also actively uh, and, and proactively supports the, um, the, the care processes that clinicians, but also patients are trying to, to, to live uh, within, within, right? And I think that's very critical. Um, so absolutely, I think what we realize is the platforms have to be open. They have to support the collection of multi-feed data. And, and that data is starting to also come from consumer devices. Right, we're seeing consumer diagnostics such as the iWatch, such as wearable solutions, start giving consumers the power to ask questions. Right, such as you know, um, I'm going to go to CVS or Walmart uh, because I've been diagnosed as potentially being hypertensive, and, and start monitoring my heart rate. Now, every time that changes, do I call my PCP? No, I have to start trending this information and really finding. At what points, at what inflection points do I want to engage my you know, PCP or my specialist to actually uh, change the course of my, my outcome? 
is is that the responsibility of the of the patients and and how educated do do we think our patient patients are going to be to really monitor those infection points i i doubt it and i think that's part of the idea of me care right the idea that care is changing um you know you know manal when i look at you know the relationships we used to have with banks or with with shopping centers and retail or even communication you know we would uh you know take a check and take it to the bank and probably invest an hour of our time making sure that money was in our bank accounts whereas today it's as simple as taking a picture from my iPhone and it, it being relayed and, and, and put into the right account. So I think what we've recognized as consumers is we are more activated and I think we're also becoming more self-directed. And, and, and really, I would say even personally, that realization has you know, been forced upon us through COVID where our, our life operations have been virtualized to where everything from a, a, a work to a worship to a working out is centered on my home. However, for me to get a prescription, for me to see a physician, ordinarily would require me to leave my home. And, and we now are saying we're increasingly intolerant of that because that's inefficient. How do we consumerize? How do we, as we say, uh, the Amazonification of care, how do we make sure that we're at the center of care? And I think that organizations, as well as uh, systems of government reviewing reimbursement, are saying, yeah, that's possible. You can take a more active role. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody is health literate, but we're seeing that, unfortunately, punitively, we're being forced to be more health literate because of rising premiums and the inability to have care locally. Yeah, um, it isn't a... Um artificial intelligence system um, gonna come to, to the rescue. Um, I, I do hear about um, already uh, a lot of data uh, about um, if, if you are able to track just, let's say, uh, your heartbeat or blood pressure or you know, oxygen levels, all of these things that, that are, you know, um, you, know you, you can get in your watch, <laughs> for example, right? Um, uh, that you can predict early diabetes and or or things like that. That that can be lifesavers if if they're if uh, we intervene early uh, in the process. So really, sort of the uh, you know the triple aim of healthcare that we've been working on, policymakers and, and as a nation, um, better outcomes, better patient satisfaction, and reduced cost of care. Um, how do you think uh, more sort of bringing it to the patient, bringing at home, uh, making it more patient-centric is going to have an impact on, on the triple aim? Well, as you mentioned with AI, I, I don't think there's a silver bullet that'll solve it all. But healthcare, and, and really if I divide that, health and care is now on the national stage because we realize there are populations that don't equitably receive care. We understand that the rising cost of care is unsustainable. And we realize that ourselves as a population is aging, which is going to tip the scale to one that requires more intervention over time. So we need tools to help us, absolutely. And we also need to make sure that to the triple aim, 
we appreciate the fact that our providers are a, a limited and scarce resource. So we need to make the time that we ask of them more relevant and more specific. And, and so truly, as, as we see IHI in the triple aim, we also see the quadruple aim, which is making sure that our patients and our care settings are efficient, but also our providers aren't burned out. And, yeah. and data is one of those massive contributors that, that, that forces those providers to say, we don't want to do this anymore, right? And that, we can't tolerate that. That's not possible. We need them and we need to provide them with a better way of using the skills that they've, they've learned to help us live a better and healthier life. I think now, some then, of that is, yeah, I mean, some of that too is sort of reimagining the, the actual work of a healthcare provider. I mean, I think of, when I think of Phillips in Baltimore, I think of Visicue, right? And the, the sort of early um, innovation around virtual ICU. And I, I don't think anybody thought in the 90s that, that you um, would be able to deliver better care with um, fewer adverse outcomes for ICU patients by um, managing them. You know, ICU patient in Salisbury on the Eastern Shore of Maryland being managed in a command center in Wilmington, Delaware, right? Like people, people didn't think that, that the care could be delivered that way. Um, but, it, but it turns out that um, if you can harness the, the flow of data in the right way um, and empower in, um, intensive care you know, unit practitioners the right way, um, they can do it better. And uh, you know, that, that's a different way of practicing medicine, I think, than, than maybe those, those docs in the 90s thought they, thought they were gonna um, practice when they were going through their training. Change is hard. But if yeah. we can innovate solutions that allow clinicians to work or operate at the highest level of their license, we're being successful. And, and to your point, you know, again, from our consumer world, when we look at our, our national transportation grid, or if we look at air traffic control, right, these mm -hmm. systems are managed by a, a foundation of computer intelligence, right, decision support that, that, that mitigates risk potential. And then, of course, leverages those scarce resources and, and whatever, you know, of those three you know, domains it is, David, and says, now you take the cognitive decision making you've learned and apply it, right? And, and we see this, of course. Now, I'm also, you know, very cognizant of the fact that no one organization can solve these problems. Um, and, and I think whether or not we come full circle to hospital at home, or if we look at Phillips, or we look at hospitals, what we realize is we all have to work together to make this outcome positive, possible. We have been encouraged by the very progressive support of reimbursement policy and waivers. Uh, we have organizations like the American Telemedicine Association that are supporting our, our push for improved policy. And, and with that, I think change can happen. Uh, change is hard, but if we work together, we can change today's standard of care to adopt technology into it. And, and you, you touched upon uh, the, the fourth aim, you know, we, we and it's a, it's a big topic, but we talk about physician burnout and all that. And I, th I think telehealth, uh, telemedicine can, can help with that as well, right? So, um, you know, we, we um, not, not being healthcare practitioners, we, we are able to work from wherever, you know, COVID has made it even, um, 
more possible uh, with all the tools and everything. And we have seen that it works. Um, you know, again, a culture shift, I guess, uh, but telemedicine is here to stay and it will help with that uh, physician burnout you talked about. It's also been interesting, I think, to see as, um, you know, I, rem I, I remember going to the, to the ATA conference, you know, seven or eight or 10 years ago, and, and there's been this sort of long argument about um, being able to license clinicians across state lines for, for telemedicine. And we've got this sort of 50 state uh, patchwork of, of licensure, which Jake knows well from our, our provider directory work, right? You, you, you figure out how to get licensure data from one state and you figured it out for one state <laughs> and uh, it's, a, it's a pain in the neck. Um, you, you know, the argument was always that if you, um, if you allow providers to practice across state lines, you, you create, you know, do, do you um, see a flood of demand because you've got suddenly, you know, the ability for someone to get a psych consult from their living room that they um, might not have gotten before because they had to, you know, drive to the drive to the clinic or drive to the psychiatrist's office. Um, I, I don't think we've seen, I don't think we've seen that in the last year and a half. Um, you certainly don't hear the, the large insurers screaming about um, the, the flood of claims that have um, that have eroded their profit margins over the last year and a half um, because folks are using telemedicine. Um, so I, I, I hope that we don't go back from this, this sort of natural experiment that we've had. And I, I kind of think that consumers will, will demand of the industry that we don't. No, I totally agree, David. I think, sure, is there some you know, retraction that can happen, of course, right? That, that happens in any kind of, uh, you know, bubble or, or influx. But I think we've seen such, you know, poignant examples of how technology has helped reach individuals during this, this, this very trying time, right? You know, I, I think again of the VA where Philips is partnered with the VA to implement the, the Atlas program which is really bringing telehealth to populations of veterans across our country that may require otherwise to travel two hours to the local hospital. Um, you know, that's the opportunity to use retail when, you know, a majority of our, our rural populations may be closer to a Walmart than they are to a hospital. So how do we make uh, retail environments something where you can receive care? Which, which is not a remarkable idea. It's certainly possible and we see examples of it happening, but we also see that our home is becoming a health hub, right? We have the opportunity to leverage technologies to communicate and inform clinicians anywhere that can then support our health and care. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> Carson, I have a curveball for you. I've been thinking about this uh, for a little bit. Um, so you, you look at the current, um, you know, uh, main market electronic health record systems, and you say you got all this time series data that's going to come in, you got to be prepared for it. And I, I, I don't, I mean, I'm pretty sure there are projects going on, but they're not ready uh, for this um, sort of different velocity and different um, uh, veracity of data. Um, you know, you, you had some time series data with, you know, uh, uh, flow sheets and others that, that they're good at, but 
um, they're not uh, as voluminous, if you will, right? And so uh, how do you think about in terms of system ecosystem um, in, in a hospital or a doctor practice? Like, do you, do you think there'll be um, two different systems that work together, interoperate with each other? Um, or what are you seeing in the market and how does, does Philips have a, a viewpoint on this? Well, I, I think clearly what we see is there's a need for platformization, right? There's a need for us to be able to support uh, any organization's appetite for the adoption of technology. And, and what we also realize is many organizations don't begin from the same starting place or the start, same starting line. And, and so why that's important, of course, Manal, is value, right? So what we've done in the past prior to platformization is offer a solution to everybody, the same solution which means that depending on the appetite of the consumer, which is the hospital system or the IDN, they may not leverage or find the same value in all of the features and the modules that are provided. So really this comes to why and how the partnerships are becoming bigger and more disintermediated, right? The idea that rather than 30, 40 different small bite-sized examples, we can really build upon uh, an infrastructure as a service model, helping to scale, helping to personalize innovation. And really, you know, to Philips, of course, one example is uh, how we're moving from being a transactional partner to one that's sharing outcomes and, and sharing the investment in how successful the, the mutual uh, relationship is between a hospital and, an, and a company like Philips. A great example there is what we've done with monitoring as a service at some very large uh, health systems to look at a significant capital investment like monitoring and move it from that transaction to one that actually can deliver uh, uptime value and KPIs that, that, that can be monetized by, by both parties. Very, very interesting. Um, do, do you, uh, again, another curveball for you probably, but um, how, does, how does Phillips think about um, you know, innovation and third-party apps. Like, you know, if, if, you, if you are controlling the platform, for example, um, you know, whether it's device data, device network, um, what have you, telehealth platform, um, how do you empower smaller, you know, sort of startup companies to bring in a value? Let's just say, you know, so, uh, there's an app that's gonna do just, um, uh, diabetes, early di diabetes detection, right? Um, or uh, heart disease related uh, early uh, detection. Um, how do you think about third party apps in your sort of ecosystem? Yeah, so it's interesting. Philips is uh, still a remarkable organization because through our divesting of, of you know, solution portfolios such as lighting, et cetera, we're now with a singular focus on health and care. And, and unlike many large companies like Philips, we still retain our, our personal health division, which includes Sonicare, some of our ambitions mm. in, in maternal fetal monitoring and, and mother and child, but also uh, dentistry and oral care. And, and if we look across this entire space and our responsibility mm. as, as Philips Manal, 
we realized that our architecture, right, our, our health suite system of engagement needs to be able to aggregate the data, not only from proprietary Philips solutions, but also solutions from that ecosystem, right? And then the job becomes a little bit harder, right? Yeah. What do we do with this data? And this is really where I think Philips can find its you know, point of differentiation, especially being a, a larger partner for larger systems, because we can aggregate that data, right? Mm -hmm. We can take the uh, data from an internal diabetes uh, or, or renal program and link it to a diabetes app that's collecting consumer data. And, and through that, then work on the appropriate AI. Um, you know, back to the example of, of tele-ICU, you know, is the value in having multiple ways to identify deterioration or a single way? And so really, you know, there's sort of a, a curve where adding too many extra clinical decision support elements may not be as valuable as actually aggregating them and having one single source of truth and presentation of, of clinical deterioration. And I think that's where if we can take the, you know, the, the Vs of data and consolidate them and, and, and bring trust and confidence, clinical confidence in how we present the output of it, that I think is really our ambition. Great to hear. Um, there are a couple, there's some questions that have been rolling in from, from the audience and I, I wanna make sure we give, give them some time. Um, one question is sort of asking about how we or, or maybe Phillips um, segment the in-home patient population. Um, there's post-acute, there's chronic. I mean, do, do you all have sort of a rubric for, for thinking about that at Phillips? Well, I, I think the most important thing to realize is virtualization is not um, compartmentalized. It really is evolutionary. And, and organizations are looking at this, David, from uh, direct to consumer, which they may have uh, tied to a, uh, a payer plan, to uh, you know, uh, patient or, or provider to patient models, which can come through an EMR's um, uh, web app or, or, or chatbot, all the way up to chronic disease. And then obviously the, the newest area that we're seeing, which is acute at home. Right. So we want to scale it, but it's less efficient for us to scale it if we introduce new platforms and new hardware at every level. So really what we want to do is, is flex and partner with the organization and the population right across across that that time. Now, you know, many times, as, as we know from from Cotter and other you know, business leaders, transformation fails when we do too much at once. And, and right now, as we're looking to move care or migrate care from the hospital to the home, we have to do so selectively. And that's another pro process with consulting to really help analyze what's the first population we want to solve for and their problem. And then how do we add to it? And, and as we look at the progression from chronic disease management to acute disease management in the home, we realize that we also want to increase the confidence with which we can, can support the outcomes. And so let's say we begin with a population of, of heart failure or, or diabetes or sepsis. We then can evolve those workflows uh, over time versus you know, recreating them every time we add a new population. 
Um, there, there's another question, and I, I may not be asking the question that this person intended, but I'm gonna I'm gonna riff on it a little bit. Um, the, the question is about video, um, and, and as you probably remember, Karsten, I mean, when when CMS first started paying for telemedicine, that they, they required that video be part of it, and I think that was intended to be a um, sort of a um, a governor on demand. Like if, if you start to pay for things that don't involve a, a video consult between a patient and a provider, you're so, sort of opening a, a Pandora's box. Um, but video also feels kind of primitive in the world of internet of things, right? I mean, you might have um, a hundred different threads of data coming into a command center about a patient and you don't really need to look that patient in the face to know what's going on. So. I mean, what, what, do you, what do you see as the role of video moving forward? Um, you know, to me, you know, it's an, it's an old quote, you know, sight is the most powerful sense, right? And so while clinically, you know, telehealth doesn't support, you know, the, the, the tactile, you know, evaluation of a patient that clinicians are, are known for, there's so much that the, you know, person-to-person video can do. But at the same time, we can also look at that as a reactive intervention, right? Um, whereas if we are being able to monitor, for example, blood pressure over 30 days, we can then see actually proactively where uh, you know, an intervention is required before the video consult is needed. And, and you know, a video consult is also intrusive, right? And we have to realize that we want to be able to support health and care over the, the duration of, of a patient's experience, right? So clearly I think video has a, has a critical role, uh, but at the same time, we realize that data can be transmitted without video being constantly on. And, and that allows us to kind of live a lifestyle where, you know, almost like, uh, you know, my, my GMC product in my, in my driveway, you know, I have a clinical OnStar assurance program monitoring my you know physiological being and, and what I'm doing coupled with data from what I buy coupled from my exercise coupled by my search history for mood and hopefully then it creates almost a, a digital twin that you know helps you know steer me in the right direction right and, and all of this at the end of the day ends up coming back to payment too right I mean um, the the the, the system or, or the practitioners need to be compensated for, um, for performance. Like I, even, even today, like when I, I can send messages to my, my PCP through, through my chart and he'll respond, but he rarely responds with more than like one word. And part of that is because he's busy, but part of that is because he's not getting paid to respond to me. Like if he wants to make money, I gotta come, I gotta come in. Uh, or he's gotta get me, you know, up for a consult on video. But we see that changing too, right? You know, we see CMS supporting waivers that allow us to extend the use of remote patient monitoring to more populations for more conditions. And we see health systems moving from fee for service to value-based care. Right? Exactly. Because it's not just the right thing to do, it's the necessary thing to do for sustainability. Yeah, you, you're not going to pay for a message or, you know, uh, bits of data, um, you know, related to monitoring. 
But as long as by value, um, then you can sort of all bucket it together. Right. Um, and then the focus moves from, um, you know, getting paid for service or getting paid for widgets uh, to getting paid for uh, outcomes. Well, right. I mean, if, if I'm in a, P, if my doctor has me enrolled in a PCMH program and he's getting a monthly capitated payment, um, he, he's worried about getting dinged if something preventable happens to me, right? Because um, he wants to protect that payment. So, but we also have to take it upon ourselves, right? You know, I don't drive 150 miles an hour down a 25 because I know what will be in store for me. Right. A, you know, likely I'll get a ticket, which makes my life more expensive. B, I might, you know, make my brakes, you know, go faster, right, which requires me to replace them. And by the way, medical debt is exactly the same thing, right? If, if we look at the rising rate of medical debt because we're more responsible for the co-pays and the premiums, we realize, I think, that we're incentivized to participate more in our care. And when we participate more in our care, we'll be more responsible. We'll, we'll elect to make choices that allow us to be healthier. And, and that could very well be that instead of us, you know, reaching out to our, our PCP as frequent, frequently as we have, we may partner with our PCP in our cardiovascular care by mm. buying a scale, by buying a, a blood pressure cuff and actually tracking our progress to the combined goals of, of ourselves and our, our physician. Renal, there's a there's a question here that um, that that I think re reflects one of your favorite topics, um, the the data deluge. Um, the question is, we, we've been speaking about in quotes too much data not being helpful. Um, what kinds of data are prohibitive, or what kinds of data do we wish we had more of? Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I mean. Um, so we, we, when we built, uh, the, the Maryland HIE CRISP, um, we, we had this notion that, um, let's, let's just get every piece of data that we want. Right. And then at, at some point you're like, oh, uh, there's too much data. And if you just are showing that whatever data was available, um, nobody wants to see it because it's just a lot of data and, and there's no curation of that data. So there's definitely uh, something to be said about, especially when we talk about the velocity of data with, um, with remote monitoring devices, you know, it's just um, reading heartbeats, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's not helpful, um, but as, as uh, Karsten alluded to, like, you know, um, what do you do with that data? Um, do you look for inflection points in that data? Um, and does that trigger something? Um, so I, I think, you know, turning that data into information is what we are talking about here. Right, like, so good, you know, looking at, a, looking at an EKG reading from 2017 is, is not actionable, right? Like it, it's not gonna inform the care that, that might be delivered to someone in 2021, um, but, but, but being able to track the change, you know, the changes and the patterns in, in a data set over time, like that, that is, that is actionable. Um, and Carson, I think you were speaking to this a little bit earlier. The, the question is, how do you build the algorithms that, um, 
you know, turn that data stream or, or turn a hundred data streams like that into decision support. Yeah, right. I, I mean, care is being decentralized, right? And so when care providers intervene, uh, they need a longitudinal view of a patient's holistic health to make a more informed decision. And so patient data for data's sake is, is not only useless, but it's actually burdensome. Yes. And it can, it can create friction. And, and so really the deluge of the data that you're seeing needs to be filtered into the actionable insights that Manal is saying. And that's where AI comes in, right? That, that's where, you know, taking a clinical workflow today, uh, adding virtualization or technology enabling that workflow and creating a new workflow. It's not, you know, uh, one plus one equals, you know, two. It's really, it's one all over again, right? We need to create a brand new workflow when we adopt virtualization, telehealth, and, and, and informatics. And we're seeing leading organizations put forth a virtual first strategy where, you know, for their emergency departments, they may say, let us innovate the new virtual you know, admission. And if it's better, then let's replace the old model of admission, right? And, and you know, as, as we talked about acute at home, we're now asking the question, do you even need to be admitted to the hospital as your destination? Or is your acuity something that can be managed elsewhere in a more efficient environment? Yeah, can, can you operate on the patient at home, for example, right? I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> Um, there, there's, I think, one more question here that that um, maybe we'll wrap up with this one. We could probably spend a whole hour on this one, but um, it's a really interesting one. So the, the question is, what at-home infrastructure is required to make connected health at home successful? Um, and then sort of what is the sort of security um, dimension of that? too, right? Like hospitals are um, dealing with a wave of ransomware attacks, just like pipelines apparently at the moment, right? Um, and so as you, you start to move this stuff into the home, there's no question that it creates um, right targets for, for, for intrusion, right? Yeah, sure. And, and that is a, you know, privacy and security question. But, you know, if we look at Maslow and the hierarchy of needs in our digital consumer world, I would actually say that uh, broadband is now a need, right? That we actually now work in a world where not having it can actually affect our ability to live good lives, right? Whether it's education, whether it's work, or now even if it's health and care, and, and really 20% of, you know, the U.S. is still in those, you know, deserts where we're not able to access them to support them with care. So to me, I think, you know, equitable access to broadband should be a right that we all have. And, and certainly we're extending it that way. And, and unfortunately, through that, we see, you know, malicious attacks being more prevalent or, or possible. And, and so for Philips, we obviously have to protect that sensitive health information across devices. Uh, we also want to help the administrators and providers and patients to have confidence in how that care is delivered. Um, and of course, that takes time. It also takes evidence. 
and we are seeing, thankfully, um, you know, new literature being published on the efficacy of telehealth, the efficacy of consumer engagement. And I, I think with that, David, we will see growing trust and that will help us with adoption. It's, it's a sensitive topic for David. His internet doesn't work very well. Yeah, we won't, we won't bring up Comcast on, on this call. <laughs> um, I mean, look, the, the financial services industry has already blazed this trail, right? I mean, wh when was the last time that any of us went into a bank branch? Um, we pretty much our, our, our entire financial lives, especially in the last year and a half, have been conducted at home um, and, and without cash. Um, so there, you know, and w with a, a manageable amount of risk to the individual, right? So there, there's, there's clearly a way to do it. Agreed. Um, well, J Jake, I'll, I'll let you kind of bring, bring this home, but um, Karsten, thank you so much for, for spending the hour with us. This has been um, really fascinating and it's, it's cool to, um, we, we live in the world of data and, and not so much in the world of the internet of things and, and devices and, and care delivery um, outside of the big health system. So um, it's fascinating to hear what you guys are working on. Absolutely. Great to participate. Thanks for your work. Well, yeah, I think that wraps it up for us today. Thanks everybody for joining us. Thank you very much, Karsten. It's nice to see you. And uh, our next interoperability round table will be scheduled in the coming days. So stay tuned for that. And uh, if you are interested in accessing our private data accesses, that will be closing next week. So make sure you sign up at leapcorbit.com slash private dash beta. And we will see everybody soon. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Take care, everybody.